Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking with Sean Falconer, who is the head of marketing and developer relations at Skyflow. Sean has previously worked at the World Health Organization and at Google. He's also the founder of Proven.com, which was acquired by Upward. He's also the co-host of a couple of podcasts, the Software Engineering Daily, and excuse me, the sole host of Data Privacy and Compliance podcast, Partially Redacted. We're going to be talking with Sean about data privacy strategies. You know, what are the good things? What are some of the bad things? We're going to be talking about uh, some of the issues with using tools such as ChatGPT in the context of data protection and privacy and some more things. But before we do that, let's say hi to Sean. Sean, how are you today? I'm good. Uh, it's great to be here. Nice to uh, uh, say thank you for that that wonderful introduction, Mark. Uh, my pleasure. Hey, so whereabouts are you located? I live in the in San Francisco. Okay. And uh, I, but I'm a, a Canadian, so I grew up in Canada, and I've been, but I've been living now in California for about 13 years. Wow. Yeah. No. I mean, San Francisco is a great city. They, it's not without its issues, of course, but just being there and then being close to Silicon Valley and all the different things that happen there, it's, it's a, it's got to be a really fun place to live. How's the weather these days? Uh, it's a little up and down. Uh, <laughs> yesterday was beautiful. Today, not so much. Uh, this is like. In many ways, the the summertime in San Francisco, in particular, the area that I live in, is some of the worst weather uh, for, <laughs> that that happens in Cal or in in the Bay Area. It's kind of the the winter uh, time of um, this area of, of San Francisco. So lots of foggy days, lots of gray. It does wear on you a little bit, but then yeah. um, you venture outside the city ten miles, and you're into often 100 degree sunny temperature, and then you're you're ready to kind of run back to the winter fell of San Francisco. Yeah, I, I don't know if you remember the movie 48 Hours with Nick Nolte and um, Eddie Murphy. I know the movie, but I haven't seen it. Okay, so there's there's a line in there that's actually originally was, uh, I think it was a quote from Mark Twain, and he said, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. Um, so <laughs> sounds like things haven't changed. Yeah, um, absolutely. Let me ask you, uh, your your title is head of marketing, which I get, but you're head of marketing and developer relations, which is kind of an unusual combination from what I've seen in the past, but what does that mean? So I, I was originally joined uh, Skyflow as head of developer relations. And I, you know, I, my early part of my career was engineering and I was, you know, I've done multiple degrees in computer science. So I have a lot of engineering training and I also worked sort of on the research side of computer science for a number of years. And in the company that I founded, I was also the technical co-founder there. So I've done a lot of technical things. And then I moved over time into developer relations at Google and developer experience, and then joined Skyflow to do the same. But uh, developer relations at Skyflow at that time was, I, I reported directly to the, the CMO. So it was my first time technically within a marketing department. But I've done a lot of marketing type work, traditional marketing work as well when I was growing my company, mostly because I had to. There was just like nobody else to do it. And uh, that's kind of the nature of when you're you're a founder of a company. Sometimes you just have to step in and take on roles or do work that maybe you you know you don't have training in, but you have to figure it out if you want to survive as a company. And so I, I did a lot of that stuff, in, both from like, you know, product positioning, messaging, uh, content marketing, demand and so forth. And I've learned some of those skills. Um, so then when in, in Skyflow, when the original CMO decided to 
leave the company and move on, we had a gap in terms of who would be the leader of the, the marketing department. And over time, because we are a very technical product, we sell to technical leaders of companies, which is not only do I have that experience as a former CTO myself, but I, I think I understand that world and understand how to communicate with those types of folks that I ended up you know, stepping into the role of head of marketing, but uh, there was also no one to lead developer relations at the same time. So I just kind of ended up in this place where I have these dual roles. Yeah, that's um, very interesting. And I, I want to stay on the marketing track for a second, even though this is secure talk, but it's it's interesting to me because, you know, one of the things that I talk to cybersecurity and data protection companies about oftentimes is how they go out and grow their business. And, you know, as you kind of moved into that marketing role and, and ramped up, did you, you know, leverage any books or associations or seminars? I mean, because you know, you you want to adopt best practices, but how did you how did you do that? I actually listened to a lot of podcasts, which mm -hmm. is uh, kind of my main channel for uh, like diving deep into almost any topic. Like, there's so much content that exists in, yeah. in the world of podcasts, and and also so many different experts. You know, you, it's like a way to get access to. CEOs and CTOs and CMOs essentially like, you know, really established leaders in almost any kind of functional area at, you know, well-known companies that have had a lot of success. You can find a podcast where they're, they're talking about their experience and sharing their best practices. So I consume a lot of content that way. And it's also a great way because, you know, you can listen to it and be doing other things. So it's, it's a yeah. passive way to learn. And then of course, as you know, if something comes up in one of those um, podcasts where they're talking about some concept that I am maybe not familiar with, but I'm interested in, then I'll do a deeper dive, uh, either leveraging like internet resources to read about it or, or potentially books. But I think with the speed of technology, that a lot of times books aren't necessarily the best resource, uh, because a lot of times by the time the book comes out, it's, it can be outdated in some fashion. Yeah. So sometimes it's much better to, to leverage things that are a little bit more real time, like podcasts or, or maybe YouTube or even blog posts. Yeah, I can imagine a book about like, you know, how to leverage chat GPT. Um, by the time it hits the street, it, you know, the evolutions and iterations of, of these large language models have, have already just moved way beyond what um, what anybody could have written about before. Um, yeah. Do you, in, in, in the context of marketing, do you have any specific recommendations for podcasts? Uh, so I love this. I think Saster podcast is a great one. Uh, yeah. that, you know, there's a lot of really, uh, it's, it's not purely marketing. There's of course, uh, sales leaders and so forth, but although, although hearing from them as a, someone working in marketing is also valuable because so much of, uh, marketing is also a, the, the, the team relationship and the relationship that you build with sales. So mm -hmm. that can be really helpful in terms of just like understanding the world of sales and having better insight there that allows you to build a, you know, a better relationship and understand where, where you fit into that world. Um, but that's really one of my go-tos because they, they have so many really accomplished guests on there and you can learn a lot. Um, and, uh, well, they I have think, a, a whole ecosystem too. It's a whole community. I, I, I love their site, um, their, their, their newsletters. I haven't been to any of their events yet and I haven't listened to podcasts, but now it's on my list. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then so, I think, oh, um, go ahead. you know, Dave Kellogg, uh, if you know who he is, he's, uh, I think he, he's been a CEO, a CMO and, a either, uh, and I think a, uh, a CFO or mm -hmm. a CRO, basically like three, three different C-level, uh, his former Salesforce guy, quite famous in the world of uh, SaaS. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I read pretty much everything that he writes about on Kellogg. Mm -hmm. 
Dot-com. So he has a lot of really fantastic material in there uh, just based on his learnings and best practices over the years. So that that's kind of like my go-to Bible with a lot of this stuff. And then he's, of course, uh, been a guest on many, many podcasts. So sometimes I'll just look him up, essentially, uh, do a search for his name and, and listen to, to anything that he has to say. That's awesome. Well, thanks for those those recommendations. Hey, um, so let's let's get into the subject of data privacy strategy. Uh, you know, I mean, everybody, every company knows that protecting their data is important. Um, some have, many have adopted some type of playbook or strategy, but there are, you know, some are effective and and some are not. What? Why don't you talk a little bit about what a data data privacy strategy is and why some of them don't aren't as effective as they could be? Yeah, so I think that there's a, a number of issues that companies typically struggle with, and I think one of the big issues is that in the early days of a company, a lot of times they're just, you're so focused on your go-to-market, finding product market fit, and whatever the sort of like mission of the company is. So thinking about how you actually manage data and where it ends up, um, and also, you know, ultimately how you protect it, a lot of times is, is an afterthought, unless you happen to be in a heavily regulated industry. Like if you're collecting credit card data, then you're, you're, you're going to need to comply with PCI DSSS. And then, you know, there's different ways of doing that. Or if you were in somewhere like digital health, then in the United States, you know, you're going to butt it to uh, things like HIPAA. But a lot of times, even collecting, you know, the things that we see in data breaches, a lot of times that, that's not necessarily something like someone's credit card information a lot of times it's it's you know account information it's their their home address um their name their email and even though we might not think about those things as as sensitive as someone's say social security number or their credit card number it still doesn't feel good as a consumer to know that my records and you know 25 million of my <laughs> uh, uh, you know uh, friends and colleagues records are out there somewhere on the web and being used for potentially nefarious purposes. So I think a lot of the big challenge that a lot of companies have is that they're they're so focused on sort of building and scaling that they're not thinking about the the management of the information. And what that ends what that ends up or sorry, what ends up happening when you're not really thinking about that from the early days of the company is if you are successful, then you get to a place where essentially your information about your customers is going to be all over the place. You've built these big scaled systems through you know, using modern technology, you know, containerization, and you got application databases, probably downstream uh, analytical stores, like maybe it's a Snowflake or um, you know, Databricks or something like that. But, and, and you have logging systems, essentially that information about your, your customers ends up in like thousands of different locations. And by that time, when that happens, it's very, very difficult to try to get a handle on that problem. And what ends up happening is companies end up spending a lot of money on building better fences around their infrastructure to try to protect it and, and, and protect all these different uh, locations where that data ends up. But it's essentially an intractable problem at that point. It's like, you know, the analogy I always like to use is imagine if instead of having you know, one copy of your passport that you keep in a safe location in your home, you created thousands of copies of your passport and then you put them all over the place and then you try to protect all those locations. That is a much more difficult problem to solve than having one copy of your passport that you keep in a safe location. But that's essentially what we do with data. 
So we put data all over the place and then we run around applying, you know, essentially chicken wire and duct tape um, and various like point solutions to try to stop the floodgates or the, 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 the you know, the leaky faucet <laughs> issues here where uh, someone might get in and get a hold of that data. Uh, and there's just, it's in so many different places, it's almost impossible to, to, to holistically protect it. So what's the alternative? So, I mean, the alternative is a, an approach that was originally pioneered by companies like Google, Netflix, um, uh, Apple, and a handful of others, which is this pattern of, in, uh, of technology known as the data privacy bowl. And similar in the, the same respect that you think about something like a secrets vault, which is based around this principle of isolation, we realize that something like, you know, passwords and, um, and you know, API keys are something special that we don't want to essentially co-locate with our source code. So we put it in this special location of the secrets vault. It's the same idea around the concept of the data privacy vault. We're essentially saying that customer data is something special, uh, like, like someone's passport. Uh, so it requires different treatment of the data than regular application data. And the key is to essentially, once you've made that decision that this thing is special and it needs to be treated that way, then you want to essentially isolate and protect it within something like a data privacy vault that is separate from your existing systems. So instead of essentially taking your customer data as well as any other application data, like you know clicks on a web page or something like that, and putting that in your database and then replicating it all over the place, move that customer data into this data privacy vault pattern, which is isolated and protected outside of your core systems. And essentially what you're doing is you're de-scoping your regular application infrastructure from the responsibilities of data security, data compliance, and, uh, um, and, and privacy, essentially. Could you walk me through like a use case, for example, let's say you have a, a, a startup, they're going to do a SaaS type business. Uh, they're going to be taking both uh, customer information and then their customers, customers information. Uh, as part of their 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 SaaS platform, the tool is going to need to process that information, and and how does this data privacy vault work in that scenario? Okay, yeah, that's a great. So let's say we're, so essentially we're 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 going to be collecting some sort of account information about somebody as an example. So account information, and then and then when they start to use the the uh, the tool, they they will probably be using you know processing data that contains their customer or other kind of you know. Inf some type of uh, sensitive data. Okay, all right. So let's start with with collection. So typically, what we do when we collect account information or any kind of like user PII, what we're doing is we, you know we have a web page or maybe we have a, a mobile app, and we have some form where people enter that information. We collect it, we pass it through, um, you know, back to our API, and then eventually we're going to save that in some downstream services like a like a database. And then we might have you know, the various replicas and backups of those systems. Uh, and maybe it ends up in a data warehouse. So instead, what we would do in the data privacy vault pattern, and this is the ideal scenario for um, any system where you want to really prioritize privacy and security, is we want to essentially de-identify that data as early in the life cycle as possible. So Essentially, what we can do is at collection of in the front end system of the web page where we're collecting this information, instead of sending that account information, instead of sending that through your API gateway and then through your infrastructure, you would send that account information directly from your front end to your data privacy vault. And then the 
Data Privacy Vault is now the single source of truth for that record. And in exchange, what the vault would do is give you essentially a pointer in the form of a, a token back to the front end. And then you would pass that token through your API gateway and your downstream systems. So now within your own infrastructure, you're not storing the original plain text values of the account data. You're essentially storing pointers in the form of these tokens. And if you're doing tokenization properly in this case, you're, there's no mathematical relationship between the original data and the token. So essentially you're descoping your systems, but you still have this reference in the form of a token. Because typically in our internal systems, very rarely is there like a business case for like why we need access to like PII information. Normally what we're doing is we're just passing that data around to different systems. And it's not until we're actually rendering the values or maybe passing it on to a third party system do we actually ever need to retrieve and see the PII. So by essentially using these uh, reference values instead, then we don't have to worry about potential exposure within our system. Because even if the tokens end up in a log file and then that log file gets compromised, the attacker is not getting anything but essentially a bunch of random strings. Well, by doing that, is there any effect on, and I'm not even sure what the metric is, but like if you're accessing data, is it, you know, speed, for example, uh, are there any effects in terms of slowing things down because you've got to reach out every time? So you don't need to reach out every time. You only need to reach out when you actually need the original values. So most of the time within our internal systems, we're not actually doing any kind of processing against the PII values. Like all we're doing is essentially passing the, we're retrieving it. We might be retrieving it from a database and then passing that record to some other system. And then that system passes that record to some other system or something like that. But it's not until we actually need to, like in the case of the account information, let's say we log in and then it's not until we go to our account page where the account page is going to show us our name and maybe, maybe it shows some partial information about our phone number and maybe our address. It's not until we actually are rendering that information on screen do we actually need to retrieve it. So gotcha. in that case, what we would do is we would pass the token values, just like we would treat those tokens essentially like the original values or the way that we would normally treat um, plain text values within the, the infrastructure, we pass those to the front end application. And then essentially the front end application can exchange those tokens in the vault with the original values. So the, you are going to end up with an extra API call, but it's, it's, it's worth the small increase there of introducing an extra API call to essentially de-scope your system from compliance. Because when you start to think about things like data residency challenges, you know, one of the big challenges that a lot of companies have now is like global expansion. So, you know, when GDPR came in in 2018, a lot of companies um, that were operating in, in Europe and, and also the United States, they were like, okay, well, we'll go and we'll, we'll, we'll create a data center in Germany so that we can comply with data residency laws in, in Germany. And then maybe we'll also have a US-based data center. But now there's more and more countries that are introducing laws like this, like Australia, Brazil, Canada, uh, Japan, and, and the number Singapore, the number is growing more and more. So it's not reasonable for a business to have 10 to 15 you know, data centers all over the world. Like that would be very operationally complex to deal with. And then it also makes it very hard to do things like global analytics. Um, and and uh, it's also expensive. So by essentially decoscoping your system, you can continue to run a global data center. And then you only need to think about where do I put my vaults essentially for uh, where I'm collecting and, and storing this regulated information.
Well, do the vaults have to be in those respective countries or because you've de-identified it that you can store it anywhere and, and does that allow you to comply with the those type of uh, regulations? So within your, let's say in your application database, if you're storing only the de-identified information, then that database can live wherever. But in the vault, you're actually storing the original information. So in that case, you would need vaults. Uh, if you are, need to comply with data locality laws, then those vaults would most likely need to live within the region where those customers exist. So you might end up with a vault in you know, Germany, a vault in Brazil and so forth. But it simplifies the amount of essentially infrastructure that you're deploying to those places because you're only uh, dealing with the small amount of data, which is your customer PII. Like in the grand scheme of the amount of data that companies store, that is a very small amount of information compared to everything that we store about our you know, application and the way that people use it. Sure. Well, with most SaaS platforms these days, connectivity with other platforms is, is kind of one of the key criteria uh, yeah. for their customers to, to select them. And when you have connectivity, you're also sharing data, right? Data's going back and forth. How does um, this type of process work in that context? Yeah, so that's a great question. So obviously we store you know, customer data so that we can use it. And part of the use of customer data is often passing it to a third party, even for something as simple as like, hey, I need to send this customer an email. So the way that would work is instead of, you know, typically like, uh, let's let's take the email example. Typically in a, in a system where we're not using something like a data privacy vault, we would store that email probably in a, you know, a database somewhere. We're gonna retrieve it in our backend. We're gonna make an API call to our email relay passing the email and whatever other information that we want to send to the through the relay to the customer. Now, everything in the vault world works exactly the same, except that instead of retrieving the email, we're retrieving this tokenized version of the email. And instead of calling the email directly, or sort of the email relay directly, we would call the vault. And the vault would act like a proxy service where within the, the, the sort of um, the uh, isolated protected environment of the vault, it can, it, can essentially detokenize that value back to the original uh, email uh, or what other information the you know the person's name or what other information was passed across and then call your email relay on your behalf so it's we can't completely build applications in in isolation or sorry in, in like silos we're always going to need to probably integrate with some sort of third party system whether that's you know like a, a CRM or you know, marketing automation platform or something like that. So some of our customer data is going to end up in those systems, but we can reduce essentially the amount of data that's going there. Um, and we can also make it so that our actual application never actually needs to see any information. The only system that actually needs to see it in this case is the vault itself, which is essentially a, a more protected environment than our application. Got you. And I'm just curious, and this is probably more from uh, the compliance or legal point of view, but when your platform is sharing data with other platforms, and if they have some type of incident, breach, or whatever it is, does, you know,